you have a Bible with you, uh, it would be helpful to have it open at Mark chapter 8, and particularly at verse uh, 22 to verse 26. Uh, because in those verses, Mark 8, 22 to 26, uh, we have an account of a very strange miracle that Christ accomplished. Uh, now, I say it's unusual, and it is for reasons I'll explain in a moment, but in one sense, it's not unusual. Um, we see Christ, and there's a man who is blind, and Christ heals this man, but the healing comes in two stages. And of course, we're all familiar, aren't we, that sometimes uh, healing doesn't happen immediately in the normal course of life. You go to the doctor, and he might tell you to put some cream on or to take some tablets, and healing comes by a process, and eventually you are cured. So in that sense, it's not unusual. What makes it unusual is that this is Christ we're talking about. And yet in this miracle, Christ seems to have two goes at healing this blind man. Uh, It says in verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. So it seems Christ tries again. It says, verse 25, Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And you think, is Jesus like any ordinary doctor? Sometimes doesn't get it right first time. Sometimes his power takes a while to kick in and take effect. It's a very unusual miracle. Especially when in so many other instances, Christ heals immediately. Uh, Almost before the person realizes it, they are healed. So why didn't it seem to work first time here? Why did Christ, it seems, have to take another go? This miracle illustrates the importance of reading our Bibles carefully, uh, reading our Bibles thoughtfully. Uh, Because reading this miracle by itself, it does seem strange, it does seem unusual. But when we read it in the context of the whole chapter, it starts to make more sense. Because Christ, when he performed this miracle, he wasn't just thinking of the man he was healing. By this miracle, he was also teaching something about himself to those around, those looking in, the disciples, the crowd, and indeed us, thousands of years later, looking on. And perhaps more importantly, he's teaching us something about ourselves as he heals this blind man. 
Because did you notice where this miracle comes in the passage we were reading? This is why I read the whole chapter. Uh, This miracle is sandwiched right in the middle of two passages where Christ is dealing with his disciples. And he is, I was going to use the word struggling, that's not the right word to use of Christ, but he is battling the short-sightedness of his disciples. Uh, If you read in the previous few verses, verses 13 to 21, Uh, We read that Christ journeys with his disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples had forgotten to take bread with them. And as they're journeying, Christ gives them a warning. He says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, Christ was giving them a warning about hypocrisy. And he was saying, beware that you are not hypocritical like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. And he described their teaching as like leaven, which expands and grows, something like a a cancer. But Jesus says, beware. Don't let hypocrisy gain a foothold in your life. But the disciples completely misunderstand what he's saying. And when they hear that word leaven, it pricks their guilty conscience, but in a way that Jesus did not intend. Because they think it's because we forgot bread. We haven't got enough bread for the journey and Christ is rebuking us for it. But that wasn't in Christ's mind at all. And it's all the more baffling because this comes immediately after Christ has just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. And Christ talks to his disciples and he says in verse 17, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, not understand? Is your heart still hardened? He says, I'm not talking about bread. Bread isn't a problem. Don't you remember what I've just done? He asks them, In verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, if you remember, that's what we looked at earlier in chapter 6. When I fed the 5,000, how many baskets did you have left over? And they said, oh, we had 12. And he said, when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets did we have left over? And they said, well, we had seven. And he says in verse 21, how is it you do not understand? He's gently rebuking them that bread is not a problem for him. They shouldn't be concerned about how much bread or how little bread they have. Christ has that all under control. What they should be most concerned about is the warning he gave them to beware the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of Herod to beware letting hypocrisy gain a foothold in their life. That's what they should be really concerned about. But the disciples are on a different planet. Their mind is completely elsewhere. They're not so worried about the thing which Christ said they should be worried about. They're worried about food. 
They're worried about bread. They're worried about their next meal. And Christ says, you're short-sighted. How can you be so blind? Verse 17, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? The disciples saw a little bit of who Christ was. Enough to follow him more than the Pharisees and the Sadducees did who rebelled and rejected Christ. Nevertheless, they're still short-sighted. They can't see him clearly. And that's when Christ performs this miracle of this blind man, when he spits on his eyes and he puts his hands on the blind man and he asks him if he can see anything. And the blind man says, I see men like trees walking. He can see, but not clearly yet. And that is teaching us something about the state of the heart of the disciples at this time. They can see the Holy Spirit is working, but they can't yet see clearly, not as clearly as they should. We can see this, in fact, in the following verses, verses 27 to 30. Uh, Look what it says next. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And you hear those verses, and you say, They can see. They can see who Christ is. Peter says it, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one promised from thousands of years ago by God to be the saviour of the world. And in other Gospels, in fact, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter, because man has not revealed this to you, but God himself. In the next few verses, we see that their sight is not as clear as it ought to be. Look at verse 31. And it says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God's but the things of men. That's a stark contrast, isn't it? In the earlier verses, Christ had said, Peter had said to Christ, you are the Christ, you're the son of God. But in these verses, Christ turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter could see to some extent, the disciples could see to some extent, but they couldn't see clearly. And Christ had to rebuke them, had to rebuke Peter, saying he was not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. The truth was this. 
Peter was still thinking, he was still seeing, he was still hearing very much like an ordinary person. Uh, He was seeing things from the world's point of view. And when he heard this shocking statement by Christ that he must suffer, that Jesus must suffer, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and be killed, Peter thought, this is, this is nonsense. This doesn't make sense. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You can't suffer. You can't die. That's not what you came to do. You came to be the king, to rule, to conquer, not be conquered. And so he rebukes Jesus, which is never a good thing to do, <laughs> to rebuke Jesus. But Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. He says to Peter, you're doing the work of Satan in this moment, in hindering me from the task I've been given. You're not thinking like God, you're thinking like man. And that's why he was short-sighted. That's why the disciples were short-sighted. Just like the man in the miracle who saw men like trees walking. There's a lesson in there for us as well. Uh, Because although I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, are believers here this evening, nevertheless, it's possible to have faith, to see, and yet be short-sighted. To have a measure of faith And yet not to see as clearly as we ought. To be able to say you are the Christ to Jesus. And yet not understand as we ought to. It's possible to be a believer and yet think more like men and not like God. That's why Christ gives the teaching he does in verse 34. Look what he says. He says, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In these verses, Christ is completely turning on its head the natural way we think. Uh, The natural way we think is that the way God blesses us is by giving us health and wealth and prosperity. And the way of the world is to say, if you are being blessed with riches, if you are being blessed with wealth and comfort, then God is pleased with you. But if your life is hard, if you are struggling against ill health, whether you have poverty at the door, then you are being judged by God. That's a very human, very natural way of thinking. But that's not the way... God thinks. It's not the way Jesus thinks. Many rich people have gone to hell. Uh, Many poor people who have suffered greatly in life 
have gone to heaven. On the flip side, there have also been many rich people who have gone to heaven. And there have been many poor people who have suffered greatly who have gone to hell. Because poverty and riches do not determine who is blessed and who is not, who is approved and who is not, who is going to heaven and who is not. What matters is not sickness or health, wealth or poverty. What matters is what you do with whatever God gives to you. Do you respond with faith to God? Or do you cling to those things by themselves? Do you have faith or do you not? Do you trust Christ with your riches or with your poverty? Or do you go your own way and find your own solution or otherwise? Christ is saying that he is the way to salvation. And that might mean, in fact, he says that will mean denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. That was Christ himself, Christ's own life, wasn't it? Christ has, is the only perfect human being ever to have existed. He's the most blessed person by God, his father, in all of history. Uh, no one is more pure than Jesus Christ, and yet nobody suffered more than him either. So that completely blows human logic out the window. Uh, if you want to say that the sign of God's approval is health, wealth, and prosperity, then Christ's life makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Jesus is teaching us to think more like God and less like man. Christ is helping us to see things more clearly, to look at suffering, to look at difficulty and trouble in life through a better lens. Not like Peter, who rebuked Christ when Christ said he was going to suffer, instead realizing that often suffering is a part of God's plan in our lives. Now, it reminded me of a story I read just this last week, uh, imagining uh, what it would be like if God decided to uh, make uh, uh, his choice of who gets what public. Uh, when he divvies out his gifts to his church, uh, what that might be like if that was made public. And this is what the uh, author wrote. You'll see it's obviously an imaginary situation, but you'll get the idea. Uh, he writes this. A day came when one of God's angels appeared before a group of Christians who were worshipping together as a local church. He stood before them and said, The Lord has asked me to distribute some of the gifts of his providence, gifts that will equip you to serve others on his behalf. I heard you singing, take my life and let it be, and thought this would be just the right time. So first up, I've got the gift of generosity. Is there someone here who would like to serve the Lord through the distribution of vast sums of money? 
He glanced at a clipboard he held in his hands and added, I should point out that this gift comes with a great deal of cash. It looks like 10 or 12 million pounds. And that's just the start. Just about every hand shot up. The angel pointed at a couple of people who, with great smiles on their faces, came forward to collect their gifts. And now, the angel said, I've got some rare talents to distribute. Flipping quickly through the pages, he said, I've got a towering intellect, great athleticism, a prime leadership ability. Who would like those? Once more, a great many hands went up. And once more, a group of people approached the front of the room to receive what they had chosen. To each, the angel said, take this and commit it to the glory of God and the good of his people. Each nodded solemnly as they took what was now theirs. Next, the angel said, I've got high position. It seems that someone here is destined for the corridors of power. Who would like to lead in this way? There were perhaps fewer hands raised this time, but still a good many. And so it went through magnetic personality and preaching ability and musical talent until there were just a few people who remained. A few people who, though they had raised their hands many times, had still not received their gift, their special calling from the Lord. Don't worry, the angel said. I've definitely got something for each of you. And it looks like the next item on my list is quadriplegia. Who would like that? After an initial gasp of surprise, the people sat in silence, hands at their sides, eyes steadfastly fixed on the floor. What? said the angel. No one wants this one. You all heard of Joni Erickson Tada, haven't you? Aren't you thankful for her ministry? Haven't you been blessed and inspired by her? Hasn't her joy spurred on your own faith? Surely someone is willing to serve in the way she has. Every hand remained down. Well, I guess I'll have to come back to that one, said the angel. How about grievous loss? Who is willing to bereaved so you can be a blessing to other Christians who will endure a loss of their own? You know, like Elizabeth Elliot. I know how much you love her story. Who is willing to lose a loved one and remain steadfast in your faith, to reassure others that you love God and not just because of the good things he has given you, but because he is so worthy of your love? The room remained silent and still. Friends, said the angel, listen. Haven't you ever been comforted in your sorrows by someone who had endured the same sorrow? Weren't you thankful that God provided someone who truly understood your pain and who could comfort you with the comfort they had received from the Lord? Aren't you willing or even eager to be that for someone else? Somewhere in the distance, a lawnmower sputtered to life, but there was no other sound beyond the occasional nervous cough. The angel, perhaps a little sorrowful now, began to flip quickly through the sheets on his clipboard. Infertility, widowhood, Persecution? Miscarriage? Won't anyone take these? Won't anyone accept them? From the back of a room, a voice broke the awkward silence. Do you have any more of those rare talents or high positions? Do you see the point? God gives gifts to all of us. But those gifts aren't always the ones we would expect or the ones we would naturally 
like. Because God's economy is not like ours. Often, God can do more good through suffering than can be done through prosperity. And Christ is warning in these verses. He's saying, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The constant teaching of Christ is the way up is down. The way of honour is the way of service. It's as we lay our lives down for the good of others, for the glory of God and for the good of others, that's the way God uses our life. So the question isn't whether you have wealth or poverty. The question is, what will you do with either of those things when they come your way? Uh, The question isn't, have you been given a family or singleness? What will you do with either of those things when you get it? What are we doing with what God has given into our hands. Uh, some people are given great wealth by God and they squander it on useless possessions and activities. Uh, others are given poverty, but they covet what belongs to others and they become thieves instead of using their poverty as a way to rely on God. Uh, some people are given a spouse and a family. And they spend their time sniping at them and griping about them. Others are given singleness and yet they waste it, yearning for something which they don't have yet, but may have in the future, instead of using the gift they've been given now. Do you see? Do you see how we can be short-sighted and not see the gifts that God has put into our own hands now? But we, like Peter, can rebuke Christ for giving us something or saying something we do not like instead of seeing things through heaven's eyes. Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to die. He had to be killed so that he could rise the third day. As the book of Hebrews puts it, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And in a much smaller way, he calls us to walk that same path. Uh, he did that for us, so that he may give heaven to us as a gift. But now he calls us to imitate his path in a small and feeble way. But to do that, we need to have clear sight. We need to understand what that means. Let me ask you this evening. uh, Are you mindful of the things of God? Or are you mindful of the things of men? Are you like those disciples who were thinking about bread and where the next meal was coming from? 
Or are you mindful of the things of God, the things of Christ, and worrying, if that's the right word, about the things that Christ is most concerned about? Are you looking down, or are you looking up? It's interesting, I don't know if this is the meaning, I wouldn't like to push it too far, but did you notice what Christ told this uh, man who he healed in two stages? After, in verse 24, it says, the man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. It says, then Jesus put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. Now, I don't know if this is the meaning of that, but it works anyway. Jesus told him to look up. And that's what we so often need to do as well. Instead of looking down at this world, thinking things the way everyone else thinks, look up and start to think the way God thinks. Look at things through his eyes. And let me just close with just one final, uh, hopefully encouragement from this uh, unusual miracle in verses 22 to 26. This man wanted to be healed. Uh, He wanted to be able to see. And I don't know, but perhaps he was disappointed in verse 24 when he couldn't see clearly all at once. But this teaches us something about the workings of God, of the workings of Christ. Christ does not always answer our prayers fully immediately. Sometimes our prayers can be a bit all or nothing, can't they? Uh, We pray for a loved one and we pray for them to be saved and then they're not saved immediately and we get discouraged and disheartened. Or perhaps we ask for healing and we want uh, for um, some great act of healing for God to perform and it doesn't happen and we're disheartened. But sometimes Christ works in stages. Sometimes he doesn't give us the answer fully, straight away. Uh, Perhaps sometimes we should perhaps ask smaller prayers. Uh, Perhaps if we did that, we would see more clearly how God is leading and guiding. Uh, Instead of merely asking for someone to be saved, perhaps we could pray, God, please give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Instead of going all or nothing in our prayers, pray for something smaller. And then we can see God working in those steps. Perhaps that will be an encouragement to us. God does not always work, so he rarely works according to our timetable. Nevertheless, we can trust him. He always knows what is best and when to answer our prayers. I trust that those few thoughts uh, from this miracle are an encouragement to us as we look up to him. And that's why I've chosen uh, as our final hymn, number 531. 531. Lord, I was blind. I could not see in thy marred visage any grace, but now the beauty of thy face in radiant vision dawns on me. So we'll close by singing number 531.